0: Tom was showing me a consciousness that said, I'm okay even if life doesn't conform to my expectations. I'm okay even if I'm not the person I thought I needed to be. That was a mind blower. The amount of excitement that I felt at that moment to see what felt to me like a key to living a happy and serene and successful life was right in front of me.
1: Well hello friends of Bill W and other friends, you have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. From Studio AA, deep in the heart of Texas, that was the voice of Alan B that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, episode number 293, and you will be fortunate enough to be hearing so much more from Alan B in just a moment, but first things First, this here episode is brought to you by Lorraine and David and Adrian and Sherry and Terry and Todd and Kurt and Lou. What, you may ask, did Lorraine and David and Adrian and Sherry and Terry and Todd and Kurt and Lou do? Hey, that rhymes. Well, they went to our website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on that little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. So thank you so much, Lorraine and David and Adrian and Sherry and Terry and Todd and Kurt and Lou for helping us to keep the virtual lights on here at Soberspeak. This here episode is coming right out to... Ewans, so much appreciate you guys. By the way, I am John M., just another bozo on the bus, and I will indeed be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in, so take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table, and let's get started. No matter who you are or what your past looks like, you are welcome here It is an open table for all. We really are glad you're here. And I know that you folks out there listening in have so many other things you could be doing with your time besides listening to my silly little podcast here. And I appreciate you tuning in. All right. I want to read something that um, was posted in our super secret Facebook group here. And this is from Steve. Uh, Steve is, I call him, our daily reflections guy in the in the Facebook group uh, he always puts something in there like I think it's every day uh, he puts a little quote from the big book and then he gives a little bit of commentary afterwards words, just like they would do in Daily Reflections and Steve is not the only guy by the way there are there are tons of folks in there that are posting things a lot of them very consistently I think on a daily basis I don't go in and check it every day I'm not really a Facebook guy to tell you the truth but I think that Facebook helps a lot of different people, so we went ahead and set up the group. Uh, we have almost, I think, three thousand people in there now. So anyway, uh, I love all of you guys and the fact that you're in there and communicating with each other and building a community. It just makes my heart, um, makes my heart light. What's the word that I should use there? It makes me makes my heart grow fonder. I, I think I'm messing that up. Anyway, I'll just stop now while I'm ahead. Or while I'm behind. Anyway, Steve posted this in the super secret Facebook group here. And it says, "My f-, this is from page 11 from the big book, if you're reading along at home. It says, my friend sat before me. And they're talking about Ebby. My friend sat before me and he made the point blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself, his human will had failed. Page 11. I'm going to read that again. Because if you're like me, I usually don't pay attention to things on the first run through. My friend, who is Ebby, sat before me. He's talking about Bill Wilson. And he made the point blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Page 11 from the big book. By the way, I always think it's kind of fun to take a newcomer, as they're coming into Alcoholics Anonymous, set them inside and say, oh, by the way, you, my friend, are beyond human aid welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, and then Steve writes after that on page 11, or excuse me, uh, as a commentary, and he says, I experience little change when I'm trying to change things on my own. Self-control is not possible without God's power. If I had the ability to control my drinking, my thinking, and my actions, I'd have no need for recovery or the steps or god well said steve he says even when i knew it was wrong to drink i drank i did lots of things i knew were wrong because i lacked the required power for sane living and healthy choices reliance is a reliance on god is a game changer no doubt I hope I can remember this to, to, to today. And then he always ends it up with, Help 1, Save 2, Happy Friday. Thanks for posting that in there, Steve. All right, now we are on to our featured guest of the week. I so much enjoyed this conversation. This gentleman is Alan B. And Alan is from Doylestown, Pennsylvania. And the title of this one is, I 'm okay even if dot 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 and you will hear Alan talk about that during the episode. Alan, my friends, has been sober for fifty year over fifty years five decades. Yes, isn't that incredible? Uh, five decade, over five decades. Anyway, we discuss a lot of things in here. Alan discusses emotional sobriety at length. Uh, we talk about his dad's bone cancer and his ultimate death, along with the trauma that caused that that caused Alan at age eleven. We talk about Alan's life in the Marine Corps uh, and his experience in Vietnam, his experience, excuse me, his professional career as a clinical psychologist. We talk about Alan's sponsor and spoiler alert, Tom, Alan's sponsor's name is Tom and that is still his original sponsor from 1971. Now, how many people can say they have a sponsor for the last 50 plus years? Uh, we talk about what it means to grow along spiritual lines. And this is one I like that Alan talked about. He, he talked about the two companions of willingness and curiosity and how they work so well together. Uh, Alan talks about sober suffering, life on life's terms, Bill's letter addressing emotional sobriety from the 1950s. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is just the tip of the iceberg. I will put a link To Alan's article regarding emotional sobriety in the show notes, if you want to access that along with some other links. Anyway, enjoy Alan. Say we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode. Enjoy Alan. Okay, everybody. So today we're sitting here uh, with Mr. Alan. Well, I'm going to go ahead. And let Mr. Allen introduce himself. So, Allen, why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, give your sobriety date if you would like, and then tell people where you live in this great land of ours, please.
0: Okay. Well, my name is Allen. I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict in long-term recovery. My sobriety date is August of 1971.
1: That is a little while, Allen.
0: That is a little while, that's that's a few years, that's over five decades that I've been, you know, in this incredible journey called recovery. And I currently, I'm living in Pennsylvania, a little farming community called Doylestown, Pennsylvania, recently moved here about two years ago.
1: And where did you move from?
0: We uh, relocated from Westlake Village, California, just a little suburb outside of Los Angeles.
1: What what prompted that move?
0: Well, my wife is a cancer biologist and probably one of the leading authorities in bone cancer in the United States. And Johnson & Johnson was releasing three different treatments for myeloma, and they aggressively recruited her. In my profession, I can work virtually, so I just have a Zoom office nowadays in my life. And so... You know when when she approached me about hey how about us you know taking a dive and moving to Pennsylvania? I said let's go for it. What a great opportunity for her. Had you ever lived in Pennsylvania before? Never. This is new for me. I grew up in Chicago, so I'm from the Midwest. But Pennsylvania, it's there's a lot to be said for this state. Look, I, I miss 360 days a year of sunshine. I, I won't. <laughs> I, you know, I love that. I mean. But I also love the seasons. I love the changing and the, and the rolling with it. And it's 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 been a nice change. And look, one of the blessings being out here, we're in a farmland. So when I get on the road, the only thing that slows me down is a tractor that's <laughs> going from one cornfield to the next. Right? I mean, there's usually maybe one car, two cars, typically a school bus in front of me. <laughs> I mean, my daughter is picked up in front of the house on a school bus. I didn't think that happened anymore. <laughs> That's great. So you
1: have five decades plus of sobriety, Mr. Allen. That is fantastic. All right. So we're we're going to get a little into that, but I I do want to talk about, you had talked about how you can work from wherever you want. Uh, I want to talk about your profession a little bit, because that's going to play a a big part of your sobriety, at least. Why don't you go ahead and tell people what you do?
0: Well, I'm a clinical psychologist and uh, I received my doctorate from University of California Davis back in 1987. And um, I work with a lot of people in recovery and trying to help them um, find and discover and achieve emotional sobriety in their life, as well as other possibilities to help them initiate and sustain their recovery.
1: And you've been doing that for how long now?
0: Well, you know, the interesting thing is I started counseling people about six months after I got sober. So it's been over five decades that I've been, you know, in the rooms on the couch, so to speak, with people and, or sitting across from the couch with people and, and really, you know, and being given the privilege to enter their lives in a very, very intimate, personal, and vulnerable way. I had a professor that says, our patients really come in the office and they cut up their, cut open their bl- veins and they bleed for us. Mm-hmm. They go, that's 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 the sacredness of, of what we're doing, and I really believe that. I take this, I take the sacredness of this of what I'm doing to very much to heart.
1: You know, there are a lot of people, and I was one of them, in fact, that when they get sober, they think to themselves, I, I want to be a counselor, you know, whatever. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, and it's all good intentions.
0: It's a really good. Well, look, you want to give something back that, that was so meaningful for you, right? Right. But there are very few, I think, who actually... And
1: like, like you've been doing it for five decades now, yes. right? There are few that end up doing it for that long yes. or take it that serious. But you yes. really, uh, you knew what you wanted
0: to do. I did know. I, look, it, it, it's part of my story. I guess we can get into it now. Yeah, yeah. But, well, let me start off by just sharing, you know, I, I, I as I mentioned, I grew up in Chicago. Grew up in a very, very solid middle-class family. My dad was a mechanical engineer. My mom was a, you know, this is back in the 40s and 50s now. She was a stay-at-home, you know, homemaker and did a fantastic job with an Italian, you know, first-generation Italian-American. So we always had a good meal on the table, you know, (laughs) pasta or this or that. And But, you know, a tragedy really befell my family back in 19... um, 62. Um, what happened is, is that my father was diagnosed with, and this will sound strange, bone cancer. Oh my God. My wife treats right now. And, um, it took his life very quickly in about a year and a half. And this man that was vital and alive and had a zest for living, you know, looked like he just came out of Auschwitz just before he died. Mm-hmm. He was 90 pounds. He was frail, his bones because what bone cancer does is it stops the the rebuilding of the bone. So the bone looks like Swiss cheese and it becomes so fragile. Mm-hmm. I mean at the end he could cough and break a rib. I mean that's that's what the the level of pain that this man was experiencing. And so when that happened and hit my family, it just spun all of us out. Um He died the day after Christmas in 1963, so December 26th. Same year John F. Kennedy was killed. Mm. It's funny that it's, you know, that that is so, you know, know, written on my consciousness, right, inscribed in my soul. So when he died, uh, my family just fell into a heavy, heavy grieving and depression. My grandfather, who was very, I was very close to, this was his only son. And so what I would hear him say is, you're not supposed to bury your son. Your son is supposed to bury you. My mom would say, this isn't how life was supposed to be. I was supposed to grow old with your father. What am I going to do now that I have to raise four kids by myself? Hmm. So, what happened, the experience I had, is everyone got so consumed by their own pain, there was no room for me, and I didn't know how to make any room for me. Not one person, and this is this probably, not probably, this is a part of my motivation to become a therapist, I'm sure. Not one person came up to me during that whole time and said, hey, Alan, what's that like for you losing your dad? This must be terrible. Can you tell me what you're feeling, what you're experiencing? Nobody, not one adult. My mother never asked the question. My grandfather, oh, they told me how they felt. But there was no room for me to tell anybody. So what did I do? I withdrew. I'm going to go ahead and now, you know, retreat into myself and try to cope with what was, un, you know, Unbearable pain, and how old were you, Alan? Eleven. So I'm eleven, and I remember. I'll remember just as clear as it's today, when when my mom walked in the room the day after Christmas, and she says, "Your daddy passed away last night," and she's crying, and I start to cry, and I look out at the street, and you know, I this said I grew up in Chicago, and in Chicago the roads get mixed with the exhaust from the, and the snow gets that kind of ugly gray look. And I felt like that's, I became a part of that snow. I froze inside. I did not want to feel anything that I was feeling. I totally dissociated and cut myself off from my experience. Now, I don't think it's, it's coincidental that about four months after that, five months after that, I'm hanging out at Bobean Elementary School. And one of the cool guys from the front of the school where there's Robert Square Park came in the back with a six-pack of old-style beer. And it was a hot summer day and the sweats glistening off the cans. And he, you know, rips one off the six-pack and says, would you like a beer? Now, initially, my motive was I wanted to be cool, right? I wanted to be one of the cool guys. Mm -hmm. The cool guys were happening. If I was a cool guy, then maybe life could be okay. But what happened when I drank that beer was more powerful than being cool. The minute I drank that beer, I experienced emotional freedom. Now, I couldn't have told you that at the time. But the experience was that I was okay being who I was. And even with all the experience of the pain, trauma, witnessing my father's death, all of that, I was okay. None of that mattered for A very brief moment. Mm -hmm. But a part of me said, if one is good, more is going to be better. And I was sprinting as fast as I could into alcoholism. I tell everybody, I don't know if I was born an alcoholic, but the minute I took that first drink, an alcoholic was born. Mm -hmm. No question in my mind. Blackout drinker, and I was a teenage alcoholic, blackouts two to three times a week. I mean, I was stealing money from my mother, who was working as a waitress to help us get by because she was the only breadwinner in the family. I mean, it was instead of me being a a part of the solution, I was a big part of the problem at that point for her. And, you know, that's, you know, something that I, I have a lot of sadness about, right? Now, that eventually turned into me dropping out of high school. I dropped out at 16 years old. Literally, I never went to high school. The first year was a joke. My freshman year at Carl Schurz High School, I hardly attended classes, blew them off. I would show up for maybe one class, go have a hamburger over at Harry's, and then go find out you know, where somebody's parents were gone. We'd raid their liquor cabinet and get drunk. That was mm-hmm. five days a week we would be doing that. And then on the weekends, we'd do some more drinking. So my life was about drinking. It was about being free not knowing how to cope with any of the things that I was feeling. So, I knew things weren't kind of weren't going well. I mean, I could see, you know, when you're when I wake up and I don't know how I got home many times a week and, you know, I soiled myself, I mean, and I would make a fool of myself. My life was going nowhere. I was working uh, at at because in Chicago if you leave school at 16, you have to get a full-time job, right? They require that. I was working as a shoe salesman 60 hours a week and every penny was going to buying booze. In fact, sometimes at the end of the week, I'd have to take money from my mother again, steal money to go buy more booze. That's how much alcohol I was consuming. A true teenage alcoholic. So I knew things weren't going well and I, I wanted to do something to change. And of course, the first thing that comes to mind is the geographic. Or maybe if I joined the Marine Corps, if I become one of the few, the proud, a Marine, that might fix me, right? <laughs> I'm make my life okay. Now, I don't my father was a, a World War II, you know, combat soldier, received a bronze star. He was a bronze star recipient. So I, I'm very patriotic. I love our country. I would give my life for our country. I didn't have a perspective. I was 17 when I joined the Marine Corps. I didn't have a perspective on Vietnam that I have today. But I, the country was calling up men to go fight, and I decided to go sign up. And they couldn't wait for me to come in. Now, because I was 17, my mother had to sign papers to let me go. She couldn't wait to sign the papers she <laughs> didn't know what to do with me. So here I go off to boot camp. That was my first experience at detox. So in boot camp, when I was shaking, I don't know if I was shaking because I was withdrawn or because this guy was yelling at me and in my face, <laughs> telling me what a puke I was. Right? I mean, boot camp was heavy duty, um, but you know it's kind of crazy. I picked the Marine Corps because at that point in time, I had an accident when I was a kid and I had an inner ear problem and I couldn't swim anymore. And you know, when you're a Marine, you're part of an amphibious assault group, right? <laughs> in the water. And I was the only Marine in my platoon that failed drown proofing. <laughs> they throw you in the middle of the pool, and you're supposed to do this technique to float, right? While well, a ship supposedly comes and rescues you if your ship gets torpedoed or stuff. And I would try to swim to get there, and po- they got these big long poles pushing me back into the middle of the pool. <laughs> I couldn't swim. They dragged me out like a wet cat out of the pool. And, you know, and, but I did finish boot camp. And then the first thing after boot camp is Advanced Infantry Training Regiment. Every Marine is a rifleman. So we went for six weeks to to this Infantry Training Regiment. And, of course, we had Liberty. And guess what happened? First weekend out. Yeah. There it is. I drank and I blacked out. I was a blackout drinker. So now my alcoholism is picking up where it left off. I mean, you know, I'm not even having a day in between blackouts. Now almost every time I'm drinking, I'm blacking out. Well, there, there became an opportunity to volunteer to go to Vietnam and I volunteered. So I was shipped to Vietnam, um, at the beginning of the summer of 1970. So I ended up going to, to Da Nang city and being, um, put in a battery, alpha battery outside on the perimeter of Da Nang, right at China beach. We eventually moved out to Hill 55, and then we did some operations in the jungle from that point on. But what happened when I was in Vietnam was very similar to what happened at school. Now somebody comes up to me and says, hey, would you like to smoke a joint? Never smoked a joint. I smoked a joint, had the same experience, freedom. Another way to be free from myself. There was other drugs that we used over there. There was was Obesitol. It was an amphetamine. There was Downers that we used. There was opium-laced, you know, uh, tie sticks, they were called. I mean, so now my alcoholism is now turning into a full-blown addiction. So I come back from Vietnam in 1971. I get 30 days leave, go back to Chicago, and the party is on, man. We're listening to Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, right? Guess who? I mean... And the booze and drugs are flying. We're dropping acid. We're doing this. I mean, and so I go back to my last duty station. I was really excited. My last duty station was on the island of Oahu at the Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station. So I go to board the plane to go to Oahu in Los Angeles after flying from Chicago. Now, all my buddies saw me off in Chicago. They filled my pockets with party favors. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to continue to party over in over in Oahu, right? Well, I get to L.A., and all of a sudden, I see them searching everybody at the gate. Oh, no. In 1971, there was all these international hijackings, and they didn't have the security where we have it today at the front of the airport. They had a metal detector set up right before you board at the plane. I didn't know it was a metal detector. For me, it was a drug detector. I was going to get busted, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? That's what was going to happen. So now I partied hard for 30 days. I wasn't firing on all eight cylinders. Thank God for that. (laughs) Because instead of going in the bathroom and flushing all the drugs in my pocket down the toilet, because I thought I'd get busted going through, I decided to go around the airport. And they had these ashtrays filled with sand. And I'd mosey up to an ashtray, move some sand aside, bury some of the drugs in my pocket, cover it up. Then move to the next ashtray. Well, I must have looked quite suspicious <laughs> because two LAX police officers were following me and digging up all the drugs. Oh, no. That they were seeing me. So I walked through the line. I think I'm free and clear. Mount burger, you did it again. You know, you avoided the bullet. Right. And all of a sudden they're standing there saying, Marine, come with us. Take me in the back room. And I'm in trouble. They've got all the drugs laid out on the table that they that they uncovered that I had in my pocket, and I think I'm going to jail. You know, this is it. You know, here's now I'm really going to be in trouble. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this one. I, I'm not Houdini. I don't know how to escape this one.
1: Have you ever watched that show to catch a smuggler by any chance?
0: No, never. No,
1: <laughs> it's a trash TV show. Anyway, it is, yeah. yeah, it's reminding me of that right now yeah. while you're talking about it.
0: Well, it turns out. Because, you know, I'm in my uniform, and I got my Vietnam campaign ribbon on, as my other ribbons do. And and the officer says, when were you over in Vietnam? I says, 1970. He says, where were you? I go, Da Nang, over by China Beach. He goes, are you kidding me? He goes, I was an MP on China Beach at the same time wow. that you were in country. So what he says to me, and look, this is a God shot, right? I'm not going to arrest you here. I will report you to your commanding officer and I'm going to, hopefully they're going to get you some help or deal with this problem, but I'm not going to bust you here. So he lets me get on the plane, keeps the drugs. lets <laughs> me get on the, Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> you know, get, you know, let me board the plane. Now the whole time I'm flying to Hawaii, I'm thinking there's going to be MPs waiting for me. I'm going to, because at that point, the Marine Corps had a zero tolerance for drugs, for the use of drugs. Mm-hmm. If you use drugs, you are out. The commandant says Marines don't have drug problems. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. He he declared it. So obviously that's the case, right? Yeah, so if you true. had one, you weren't a Marine anymore. That's the kind of thing. So I got there. There were no MPs. I go and I checked into my unit. It was late at night, so I couldn't see the first sergeant. I saw him the next day, and that night I thought, you know what? I think my best bet here is to just turn myself in before they bust me. And maybe that'll help, you know, in some way. I had no idea how, but maybe in some way it'll reduce some of the harm. You know, you know people talk about harm reduction. I think that we were experts at it. Always figuring out, what can I do to minimize all of the trouble that I've just caused for myself, right? So I think that that's why I don't think harm reduction works well with us addicts because we've tried that many (laughs) times. So now I go into the first sergeant the next morning, I go top. I got a problem with drugs. He looks up at me and then he starts shuffling his papers on the desk. I'm thinking, I just told this guy I have a problem. What's going on? After what probably was two minutes, felt like 15, he pulls out this paper. And he says, "Burger, you are one lucky Marine. I just told this guy, what is he smoking, right? (laughs) I I just told him I'm I'm, I'm a drug addict. He goes, three days ago, the commandant signed into an order a drug exemption program. So we're not going to discharge your sorry ass. You're going to rehab. Mm -hmm. I was the third Marine admitted to that program on the third day of the program's existence. Wow. Unbelievable, right? Now serendipity, synchronicity, a god shot, I don't know what it was, but I, I didn't realize I was in I was in the beginning of a miracle. <laughs> I was experiencing a miracle from all of those things that had happened.
1: And how old were you at that time?
0: I was nineteen years old. Wow. Thank you. So I go to this program. They have no idea what they're doing. It's three days old. They put a captain in charge because he had a BA in psychology. I got a <laughs> BA in psychology. I didn't know crap when I had a BA in psychology. I'm in therapy with him going, yes, or no, sir. That's not a way to conduct therapy. I mean, it's, but what they did know is that they didn't know. And they turned to the recovery community outside the base. And it was a little town called Kailua. And Kailua happened to have a bunch of young people in recovery that were brought into recovery by this woman, a Pied Piper of young people back in the 60s and 70s called Flowbird. And they were called Flowbird's birds. <laughs> and they were, and they were, they had, she had an incredible faith in God and was able to help them develop this way of life, the AA way of life. And so the staff sergeant in charge was also in recovery in AA himself. And he invited this young person by the name of Tom to come in and share his story with us. And it was called the Tuesday night recovery wrap session. It was about recovery, not about all of the problems with drugs. It was about what does recovery look like? Mm -hmm. So you got to picture this. It's a Tuesday night in the evening on the base. Tom walks in and he's a hippie. He's got his hair pulled back in a ponytail. He's got wire rimmed John Lennon glasses on. He's got a you know Hawaiian print shirt, his standard-issue khaki pants in Hawaii, Birkenstocks, <laughs> right? right? And here we are, about 20, 25, 30 of us, in our combat fatigues. And that's in Vietnam. Well, he told me you know, later on, he says, Oh, God, I didn't know if I was going to get out of here alive. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I was skeptical. What does this guy have to say to me? He was out probably protesting to all while I was over there fighting. You yeah. know, through him. Yeah. But something, the magic happened that night. Because when he started to share, when he started to tell his story, much like I'm sharing mine with you, I was able to see the emotional freedom that he had. He could talk about issues in his life, pain, suffering, depression, anxiety, insecurity. I would never, never let those words pass my mouth. I'd never let you know I felt any of those things. I was, of course, a hard and tough Marine, right? I can handle anything. Yeah, BS, right? right? But that's the ego. That was my ego talking at that point. So there was a part of me at that moment, and I couldn't have articulated it this way, but I saw that freedom in him that I felt when I picked up the drink. He was okay being himself. He did not need to be anybody other than who he was. I never felt that except when I was getting high or drinking. He was okay being Tom. I was never okay being Alan unless I was high or drunk. <laughs> a Part of me said, if I could achieve that in my life, I just might be able to make this life work. Just maybe I could find a way through this and be okay and be happy. Now, I didn't realize what I was seeing was that he had a consciousness that was very different than mine. See, my consciousness was so grounded and rooted, and I'm okay if. I'm okay if life is what it's supposed to be. I'm okay if things happen the way they should happen. I'm okay if my wishes and desires get met. Tom was showing me a consciousness that said, I'm okay even if life doesn't conform to my expectations. I'm okay even if I'm not the person I thought I needed to be. That was, I mean, a mind blower. The amount of excitement that I felt at that moment to see what felt to me like a key to living you know a happy and serene and successful life was right in front of me. And I could relate it because of what I felt when I was getting high, how that freedom, what that freedom meant to me. That's what I was looking for. That's why I, I got I ran so fast in that direction. Well, now I get as excited and even more excited about AA and recovery. And I go up to him after me and says, "How? how, how did that happen in your life? Is that possible for me? He says, stick around. I think it is. Uh And I did. I I would hitchhike every night after I was done at the base. I'd go to the other side of the island. We'd go over the Pali Highway. If you've ever been to Oahu, we were on the windward side and we go over to the other side where Waikiki and Honolulu was. I'd go over to his apartment. He'd take me to a meeting we come back to his house, and we'd sit and talk for hours. After the meeting, i go back to the base. Would you have to hitchhike back? Hitchhike back. <laughs> Did that. So that man, and he doesn't mind me using his name, is Tom McCall. Tom is still my sponsor today. Wow. After almost 52 years of recovery. Wow. He, does he uh, still wear the Birkenstocks? No, he doesn't. Sometimes, sometimes he wears Birkenstocks. He's changed a lot. He's he's up there like I am. I'm in my seventies, <laughs> and he's in his seventies. And but does he still live in Hawaii? He, he does. He lives. He lives now on the island of Kauai. Uh, then he was living on the island of uh, Oahu. And it's just I, I can't even begin to tell you what that relationship has meant in my life. He had faith in me when I had none. I mean, he saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself. He saw that there was a potential in me that if I really, really worked hard, and we worked hard, he believed that the program was not in meetings, but in the steps. Oh, he believed in going to meetings. But he said, this is where you're going to find your answers. We got to work these steps. And we did. We worked them rigorously, you know, and thoroughly that year. And if, if, when my fourth step, I presented to him. He says, "Now you got to dig a little more on that. Come I on, you try a little harder on it this time." And we did, and it, you know, and it was amazing. I mean, I I grew so much that year, and I got so excited about recovery. Now, what's cool that happened for me is after I was sixty days clean, they didn't have any counselors at the Drug Information Center. So the captain came to me and said, "Burger, how would you like to become a counselor?" <laughs> I said, "Beats pushing 105 Howitzers around the base, sir." <laughs> and he said, "Welcome aboard." <laughs> and now, the second thing in my recovery happens. I find I fall in love with working with other people, of of sitting with people and trying to help them discover new possibilities. I had no skills at that time, but what I really learned that sometimes it's just one drunk talking to another drunk. With love and compassion and concern. And that can be incredibly healing. And it was. We helped a lot of people find recovery in that program. And and also because we had such a great support system outside the base at that Kailua meeting with all those young people that were going on. So now I'm turned on to working with others. And I decide, you know what? I want to become a clinical psychologist. Now, when I would share that at meetings, some of the old-timers would say, yeah, that's another one of those alcoholic, grandiose ideas. (laughs) Those kinds. There was a lot of naysayers. I said, just focus on your recovery, son. Well, this was my recovery. This was a part of it. And I decided to go back to school. I'm a high school dropout. Wow. Literally no high school. I take my first college class in Hawaii is oceanography. Great place to take oceanography on the island of Oahu. And now I'm falling in love with education. I am realizing that this is a part of expanding my consciousness. The work in recovery, I was also doing some individual therapy at that time, going to workshops, and now educating myself. The synergy amongst those three things was incredible for me. I got so turned on to school, and I took more courses, and then, you know, I, I was discharged with a, I'm so proud to say, an honorable discharge <laughs> from the Marine War after three years. They wanted me to stay in. They promoted me to a sergeant because they wanted me to stay in and work as a counselor in their drug program, but I wanted to go back to school and get my doctorate, so I went back to Chicago, and then that, now that next chapter of my life starts to unfold. But what I want to emphasize here is I had a taste of emotional sobriety that early in my recovery. I could not have told you that's what it was. And it's so funny because my sponsor, Tom, had even given me the letter that Bill wrote that was published in the 1958 grapevine under the title of Emotional Sobriety, The Next Frontier. I read that thing. I didn't like it because it said I was dependent. <laughs> I didn't want to face my dependency. Look, more will be revealed. huh How often do we hear that? Mm-hmm. You know what I say is is that as you're around for a long for a long time, like today, I can really see, and it d- continues to be be more and more is revealed to me today. I'll even share some of that in a little bit. But I can see today things that I couldn't see about myself back then. Mm-hmm. I can be more honest with myself today. And, and what I know today is because I do have a certain sense of self-esteem, I'm now able to look at things that were hard to look at before because they don't define me anymore. They're just a part of me. But before, when I was looking at those things, I was too identified with them. So if I, if I faced how much I lied, I was a liar and that's all I was if I faced too, you know, that I was manipulative, I was a manipulator, and that's all I was. There wasn't any other Alan that existed. Today, I can see those things and see them as a part of me. I can see my selfishness, my self-centeredness, my dependency, all those things as a part of who I am, but they're not all of me. And I'll tell you, one of the great gifts is that I discovered that there's a part of me that really wants to grow along these spiritual lines, that I want to become what I can be. Bill uses that phrase a lot, that we, we now realize we can become what we can be. And what I can be is a more fully functioning human being in this world. I can be alive. I can feel my pain. I can feel my sadness. I can feel my disappointment. I can feel my anxiety, but I also can be happy. I can feel joy. I can feel excitement. I can feel true pride, right? Not the false pride I had before about, you know, being someone I wasn't and pulling it off, but a true pride about who I am and that I, I do make a difference in this world. I mean, what an incredible journey and gift that this has been. I mean, I, I just sitting here, I can almost cry. I feel so grateful right now. You know, how do you get from there to here, right? How do you get, well, with a lot of hard work, with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, with a lo- with a commitment, and I'll tell you, there's a few key words I want to use here, willingness and curiosity. Those are wonderful companions for us on this journey. And you, you know, if you're out there listening to this, please make willingness your friend. Make curiosity your friend. Ask yourself these questions like Bill wants us to ask. If I'm disturbed, what's wrong with me? What's off inside of me? Not, not what's wrong with this idiot that just pissed me off right? What's going on with me that I'm having such a strong reaction to this? You see, that curiosity about me now looking into and practicing this self-examination that we learn in this program has been such a key to developing this new way of life for me. So curiosity and willingness, the willingness to try things on. I mean, you know, I, I... Tom was very much in, in, in Oahu, in the city of Kailua, this one guy, a very wealthy man, bought this house, this old Victorian home, and he converted it into a human growth center called The Place. It was called <laughs> The Place. And The Place was wonderful. They had encounter groups going on. Now, this is back in the 70s when the human potential movement was going on, right? So the rooms were filled with padded floors, Bean bags <laughs> and there was this old foam back called a Bataka right that we would use or a tennis racket to work out some of our resentment and anger and so this the place was filled with these rooms and every night there would be an encounter group to address this issue, that issue and I fell in love with all this personal growth stuff mm-hmm. you know and in fact that's part of my story is you know I I've talked about well first of all, I want everybody to connect what I said earlier about how I got so exposed to the idea that life is supposed to be a certain way. And if it's not that way, we don't know how to cope with it. That's what I saw my mother do. That's what I saw my grandfather do. Now, they never told me that, mm-hmm. but I saw it. And a lot of these things that happen that, that impact our behavior are not messages directly given They're messages that we indirectly take from watching them, watching other people deal with life. So I took that to heart, that life is supposed to be a certain way. And if it's that way, you can be okay. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Now, that didn't work well. That idea, that attitude, and that's the big attitude that Bill Wilson challenges in in that letter. And if you have not read that letter, please Google it after you hear me talk today. Read it because it's got so much so many insights into, into, into life, into Bill's struggle with his depression and what caused it, but also into our dilemma, you know, which is what I say, a consciousness that says, I'm okay if. So that's going on, right? All of this stuff, this supposed to stuff and all of that. And now I'm finding in my early recovery, when do I have the most difficulty? When things don't go the way they're supposed to go. Mm-hmm. I experienced what Fred Holmquist calls sober suffering. Didn't know how to deal with that. Now, thank God I could go to Tom and we'd start to talk about it. And now eventually more and more was revealed and I realized I need to unhook all of my expectations from how life should be, how life is supposed to be, how I should be, how you should be, how anything should be, and learn to accept life on life's terms. Now, easier said than done. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm much better at it today. And you know, if things, but it's really made, I can say this, it's made a difference. and, And I really, really believe today. It's really helped me enjoy a, a, an experience in recovery that is, is incredible.
1: And when you say it, just so when you are, you're talking about the emotional emotional sobriety,
0: sobriety, the principles of that. And look, Bill said it. A lot of people don't get this in 1950, when he wrote the 12 and 12, if you go and start to read step 12 at the end of the first paragraph or the second paragraph, I think it's the first, he says, essentially, he says, if we practice. The, tw- the principles of the 12 step in our daily lives that we and those about us find emotional sobriety. Mm-hmm. The expressly stated goal of the working the steps is the achievement of emotional sobriety. I have been around a lot of meetings, thousands of meetings. You know how many times I've heard that said? Well, whenever I'm in a meeting, it's said, <laughs> but beyond that, I haven't heard now. Today, thank God, I think we're starting to get a resurgence. See, Bill in his letter back in 58 Grapevine, letter was actually written in 53, he says he hoped that this would spearhead the next major development in AA. It did not, unfortunately. I think it is now. I'm seeing more and more emotional sobriety meetings and workshops pop up. I think some of my my work and my workshops that I do and the writings I do have helped, you know, stir that interest and help, you know, bring to our awareness the importance of this.
1: There we go. We read from page 164 of the book, and it says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows clear away the wreckage of your past, give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. And I do want to go ahead and mention with Alan has talked. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell them about our conversation before I came on Right. And where I struggle with, uh, people like yourself and what I mean by that and i'll I'll describe it is you're an AA member right you've been going to AA for a long time you've been to thousands of meetings you have that piece but you also have your your you have a public persona and you have written books and you have workshops and all of that stuff right and generally speaking i just have kind of traditional bozos on the bus even though you're one of us you also have a lot of stuff that goes on outside of alcoholics anonymous and i want to give you a chance to 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 mention those and when i say mention those i know you have a, a thursday night workshop that people can attend and you've done some writings as well and, and you can go ahead and talk about that tell people where they can find it.
0: Well, th- thank you for giving me the opportunity to do. It. As we got on I said to you look this I'm not here to promote anything know, but but it, it is a thing of attraction not promotion because the Thursday night meeting I started as a public service when covid hit and I felt people weren't getting to a meeting and wouldn't it be great if we could just do a workshop and bring people in and get a community together that was interested in emotional sobriety. So it's every Thursday night for at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's an hour-long workshop. We're currently going through the steps and looking at how the steps help us achieve what we call an authentic self-esteem and how that relates to emotional sobriety. It's an amazing discussion. There's f- me and three of my colleagues, um, Herb Kay, um, Tom Rutledge, Roger Andes. We take turns. We're right on step number eight right now and we're going through it, It's and all of these are archived on a YouTube channel that's called the Institute for Optimal Recovery and Emotional Sobriety. There's like 90 videos. Some of them have had 10,000 views already. So, you know, I'd encourage you, if you want to learn more about that, come to the meeting. If you go to my website, there's a link to the meeting, www.abphd.com. So abphd.com. It's my initials with my PhD. Also, you'll find out all about my books. The one I'm really excited about now is my new book, The 12 Essential Insights for Emotional Sobriety. So if you want to take a deep dive into the process that occurs, because the 12 insights are building on, like just steps build upon one another, right? I say that there's, the way I talk about the steps, there's an energy that starts, right? One step creates a charge and the next step discharges it and then creates its own charge. And it propels you right through the steps. I just love how they work. (laughs) Well, that's the process in emotional sobriety. Once you get hooked in, and I'm sure you've had this experience, the steps start working you. I mean, you don't work them anymore. In the beginning, you have to, you got to make it conscious. But after a while, these things take a hold of our life, right? And then we start moving, which is great. You know, so so if you go um, if you go on my on my website, you can see the books that I've written. Get the link to the meeting and see the other stuff that's available.
1: And I'll put links to all of this in the show notes for I'll all you. need.
0: I'll send you a link to that Thursday night meeting because that great-
1: sounds great. That sounds great. Well, Alan, once again, it has been a pleasure, and uh, um, I look forward to uh, uh, talking with you again soon. God bless you, my I, friend.
0: I do too. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Thank you again, Mr. Alan B. Uh, we will get Alan scheduled and get him back on the pod again for another ep. And as usual... We do not want you sharing your gossip. However, we would love you to share this episode with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. So pause that device that you're on, hit that little share button and send it over on to them. We'd appreciate it. All right. Now, on to a little bit of listener feedback. Sean writes in, and the subject line was, Marty C. Fourth Step Episodes. And he started it out with, Wow, I am 15 months in the program and I'm doing great, but I have been struggling with the fourth step. My sponsor and most of the people who share are all resentment or sex people. And what he means by that, just go back and listen. It (laughs) It just sounds weird. Like if you tuned in and you don't know anything about the fourth step. And you heard me uh, read that, it would just sound a little bit interesting. They're all resentment or sex people. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Anyway, and he says, and I didn't understand that I'm 100% a fear-based person. Listen to Marty has literally broke me through and has opened up a huge can of worms and I'm getting through it. I get it now. And I'm so grateful for your podcast and Marty C's explanation of the four steps uh, thank you so much, Sean T. from the Cheyenne, Wyoming uh, group uh, of the Noon Non-Smoking Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> so, if you are up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, I'm Wyoming, like... Um, like uh, it started, it sounded like Wynona there, but nonetheless, if you were up in Wyoming and you happen to be at the noon, no smoking group of Alcoholics Anonymous, please give Sean T. my best. So thank you for writing in, Sean T. And you are absolutely correct. Marty C. is the best. I so appreciate you writing in. Oh, and if you're wondering what he's talking about there, Mr. Sean T., Oh, gosh. I, You know, a good podcaster would have available the episode numbers for, for Marty C., but you're dealing with me, so I, you have to go back. It's probably about 10 episodes back from this. It's not too many episodes back, but uh, go back and listen to Marty C. And the. there's a two-parter that he has uh, specifically addressing the four-step. So if you're confused on the four-step and want to know a little bit more about, it and how to get a little bit of traction go back and look up marty c addressing the fourth step and, and if and if and, and if you can't find it email me at john j-o-h-n at soberspeak.com and i will get you that uh, information that that you need <laughs> that was very clumsy anyway chris writes in and Chris says, hello John. Well, hello Chris. He says, I live in a place called, it looks like bully, uh, could be pronounced bully, uh, B U L L I, which is near Sydney, Australia. Well, hello mate. We're glad you're here. Mr. Chris, he says, I've just celebrated 40 years of sobriety. I still can't quite believe that. Congratulations on 40 years sobriety, Chris. Um, I never forget what it was like, nor what would I want, to, nor would I want to. I'm heading off on a big road trip in June, and I wanted some sobriety talks to listen to, and Sober Speak was suggested on a Facebook page in response to someone's request for info about AA Talks. Well, I'm glad you found us there, uh, Mr. Chris. He says... um. Uh, I haven't listened to anything yet, but I'm really looking forward to doing that now. And I know it'll be the best company for me on my trip. Big smiley face. All the best and gratitude to you for what you do and help us alcoholics stay sober, Chris. Will you help me as well? We're all in this together, Mr. Chris. And when you're taking that trip in June, hopefully you'll be able to hear your... uh, letter email uh being read on the pod here's another one jimmy actually posted this in the super secret facebook group and if you say to yourself how do i get in that super secret facebook group john how super secret is it do i need to do a super secret handshake or anything like that no all you need to do is go to facebook the application and search up so Uh, I I always struggle with this. Uh, um, Hold on. There's a lot of S's in here. Sober speak secret group. You don't have to put the super in there. I'm wondering if I throw people off by putting that super in there and maybe they can't find it sometimes. Uh, we just put the super on because there was a gentleman named Dave when we first started this podcast who kept writing in and saying, it's the super secret Facebook group. And, and I just, I don't know, it just sounded cool. But nonetheless, go to your Facebook application, look up the Sober Speak secret group, ask for admission into the group the bar is very very low and we will get you on in there uh so anyway jimmy posted this in the facebook group it says 52 days sober today and a big uh like a hug smiley face emoji i think is what that is he says i was listening to chris s the podcast called recovery is progressive on the podcast today during the combo. John M. asked him why people who come to meetings don't do the 12 steps. <laughs> and then Chris said, because the people think the fellowship is enough, the answer was more clear to me. It's because people don't know where to start or how to actually do it. As someone who, as someone new to the program and reading through the BIC, Uh, through the book and also someone who is super analytical and process oriented. To me, some of the steps seem theoretical. How do we make them more concrete? Is there a workbook to follow along? I know the steps work, just don't know where to start. Thanks for any tips or maybe I'm just overthinking all this. Highly likely, he says. (laughs) Would Jimmy... Oh, I'm not going to go through all the responses. He got tons of responses, right? You ask somebody how you do the steps and you ask 10 people, you're going to get 10 different answers. And that's why we do this podcast. We, we want to give people a variety and not it's not one size fits all for everybody. Like we say at the beginning, take the take the best or no, what do I say? Something like, uh, take the best and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up something like that. Nonetheless, Jimmy, I'm glad you, uh, uh posted that in the super secret Facebook group. And I hope you got the answers you were looking for. In fact, you probably are more confused now. Uh, but, our, uh, Ah, I'm not going to go into. I don't want to give any advice right now. Uh, Just uh, I hope that all worked for you, Jimmy. Uh, But if you have any more questions, email me at John J O H N at soberspeak.com. Guess what, everybody? That is episode number... What episode was this today? That was episode number 290, right? We're getting right up on... Uh, two, oh, I'm, I'm trying... Oh, it was episode number... Oh, 293. That was episode number 293. We're creeping up on yield uh number 300 here. I, I I don't know what that actually means. It's just number 300. But nonetheless, as we always say here, uh, keep coming back. It works if you work it. May God bless you and keep you until then. Love you guys. As usual, I take this one week at a time. I may be back next week. I may not, but life will go on if I don't come back. God bless y'all. Thanks for listening in.